Good morning. Good morning. Open, if you will, to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll read together today's passage. It's Mark chapter 2. We'll be beginning at verse 23. And we'll read together to chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God. In the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any to eat, but the priests, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful to, uh, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for what Jesus brings to us here. He brings to us clarity on how the Sabbath matters. It does indeed matter. We know that. We've seen the teachings and we'll see more, Father. Show us how the Sabbath matters. The Lord also show us how it hangs on bigger things than just itself like all the commandments, how it rests in the two great commands, Father, and show us how it speaks to us of who we are as believers and what we have to hope for, Father. Bless this time that we might understand clearly what the Sabbath means, that we might not f find ourselves caught up in mistakes or errors, that we might celebrate it well and bring you glory, that we might know better what you've done for us and how you want us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. The episodes we just read about are the last of a series of conflict stories that Mark has recorded for us which show how it was that the friction between Jesus and the Pharisees increased over time. These two stories describe conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees over the observance of the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, which was set aside in the Jewish law as a day of rest. But why, we wonder, perhaps, of all the issues, did this one so offend the Pharisees that they actually decided they had to kill Jesus? We have our weekends, which are, for many of us, days off from our regular work, um, and we use them for chores, recreation, time with families, and to go to church. But we would never dream of arguing over whether it was okay to pluck fruit from a tree and eat it on the Sabbath, 
let alone plan to destroy someone for disagreeing with us on a matter like this. But the Jews had reasons for holding so passionately to their beliefs. And Jesus, by challenging those beliefs, was speaking directly at the heart of what it means to be a believer. And he was undermining some of the core assumptions that the religious leaders had about what it means to honor God by observing the Sabbath. Though we are a long way from the controversies of that day, God still intends for us to hear his teaching on the Sabbath, for they speak to us about what it means to honor God and how easily we can miss the mark. To understand how much the Sabbath mattered to the Jews, all we need to do is look in our, word, in our Bibles for the word Sabbath or the phrase the seventh day. It's all over the place. And I could spend the rest of the time I have simply reading passages from the Old Testament that describe the use and abuse of the Sabbath. Well, I'm not going to cover them all, and everybody heaves a sigh of relief because we'd be running into the 11 o'clock service if I did. Um, I'm going to read a considerable portion of Scripture here because it shows us clearly why the Sabbath mattered and why there was no room for compromise in the minds of the Pharisees on this issue. You're not going to need to turn to all the passages I'll be covering, but I will ask you to read with me on a few of the longer ones. First, the Sabbath matters because God rested on the seventh day of creation. As we read in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Sabbath is not an invention of the Jews. Or of an ordinance that God created specifically for the Jewish people. It's intrinsic in the nature of God himself. For God rested on the seventh day of his work of creation. God didn't wait for Abraham or Moses to come along to make the Sabbath holy. It was holy from the very beginning. The seventh day of the week was blessed and holy at the time of Adam and Eve. Of Cain and Abel. And of Noah and his family. And it is blessed and holy today whether we observe it or not. The Sabbath matters because its observance is spelled out in the fourth of the Ten Commandments. This is one passage we should turn to together. Deuteronomy. Let's turn to chapter 5 there, which is the second of the readings of the Ten Commandments. It'll be Deuteronomy 5, starting with verse 12. So it reads, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Notice, he's closing every single loophole. There is no way out. Nobody works on the Sabbath. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now these are not the ten suggestions. They are not subject to willful editing to suit people's preferences. Uh, 
We can't say, you know that, that sixth commandment, that one about not murdering? You know, it's not a bit strict. Aren't there some people who would be better off dead? And is it really so wrong if we gave them a little push in that direction? Uh, no, no, that's not one of the options before us, nor are the commandments about, you know, giving false testimony or stealing or committing adultery. They're not subject to amendment or editorial correction. If keeping the Sabbath is at the center of God's covenant with his people, along with not making idols and not slandering others, then it matters. And notice how in giving this ordinance, God also reminded his people that they were once slaves, but are not slaves any longer. In their servitude, they had been forced to work seven days a week in Egypt. Insisting on working seven days a week now that God had delivered them from Egypt was like saying they wanted to return to slavery again. And to force others to work on the seventh day was a violation of the commandment to love your neighbors yourself. Because God had rested on the seventh day, we who are made in God's image are entitled to that rest as well, whether we are free or slave, citizens of the kingdom, or only visitors to it. And the Sabbath matters because when God gave manna from heaven on the sixth day, he gave twice as much so that the Israelites wouldn't have to gather it on the Sabbath. This was a big deal. Because the first six days that manna had been given, God had to pound it into their heads that the manna was daily bread. It was not something that you could store up for future need. The Israelites wanted to store it up too. And there would be days when they would go out and gather an additional pile of the stuff and they'd keep some of it for the next day. And the next day it stunk. Worms, rot, smell, not the kind of stuff you would want to eat, not the kind of stuff you wanted to keep. But on the sixth day, it was different. They went out and gathered, and they found that they had leftovers when they were done. They had enough for another day, and they were thinking to themselves, oh my God, we've got another day's worth of food sitting here, and it's all going to spoil, and it's all going to stink, and this camp is going to smell to high heaven. What do we do? And Jesus said, oh, God said, but no problem there. Um, he said, you know, and this is Exodus 16, 22. Um, he, he says, it says, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till morning. And Moses, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. But of course, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. <laughs> Idiots. I mean, just come on, people. <laughs> But no, no, they, they had to try it, and sure enough. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Doggone it, people, you will rest. <laughs> so so they, they were told, you know, God has provided what you need so you can rest on the seventh day. He will keep it fresh so you can eat it tomorrow. What's more, he's not going to give you manna on the seventh day, so there's no point in working even if you want to. 
This is training wheels for the Sabbath law. You know, I mean, sometimes we ask, why doesn't God make it impossible to sin? Well, this is one case where he really works at that. He says, you know, people, you have your food. You are not going to get any more if you try. It is impossible for you to work on at least this kind of work on the seventh day. So he gives them the support that makes disobedience in this matter not even, you know, not practical, not possible in some way. But there were other ways to disobey the Sabbath law, other ways that one could work. So God emphasizes further that the Sabbath matters because he made violation of the Sabbath punishable by death. That's pretty definitive. There are a number of examples of this, not just one. And we'll read one together. It'll be Exodus um, 31, 12 through 17. So if you turn to that passage, Exodus chapter 31, not too far from where we were. Now I'll read starting with verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I, the Lord, sanctify you. You are mine. You shall do what I called you to do, and you shall not do otherwise. This, this kind of message just reverberates through this. And God says to the people, if I rested on the seventh day after the work of creating the universe and everything in it, if I thought that this was important enough to bless the day and make it holy, then you, my people, are going to rest on the seventh day from all your work. The Sabbath day is my day, not yours. And you will do on it what I permit, not what your covetousness drives you to, because it is covetousness that was driving the people, setting aside more, piling up that additional stock, having the stuff that they could rely on. So if God didn't come up with mana on that day, we're fine because we've got extra. And God says, no, you're not going to pile up in case I'm not faithful. You will trust me in these things. And so he drives home this point. When a man was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath, the Lord told the Israelites in Numbers 15, 32 to 36, that they were to stone him. A stoning is a kind of punishment we do, don't do much anymore. Typically, our death penalty is a little bit tidier. We send somebody off to a place where nobody sees, and we put him in a chamber that nobody knows, and we flip a switch, and he dies. And it's all neat and tidy, and nobody's aware of it, and we go on in our ways. But stoning was a very, very public death penalty. The whole congregation was to stone. And the message behind this is that God is requiring the whole congregation to declare by their actions that the man's violation of the Sabbath was abhorrent to them, that they repudiated it, and that they would not tolerate Sabbath breakers in their midst. They're standing up and saying it by the act of picking up that first stone and throwing it. But you know something? Even after saying it that way, these affirmations didn't last. Disobedience to God's law became routine over time. 
The nation was divided in two, and true worship disappeared in the northern kingdom of Israel, while the southern kingdom of Judah became corrupt, and the worship was badly diluted. Finally, Israel was conquered by the Syrians, and the people were dispersed throughout that empire, and Ju Judah survived. But God warned them through the prophet Jeremiah that unless they repented of their sin and turned back to him, they would suffer a similar fate. Another passage to turn to is Jeremiah 17. So if you can turn to that as well, we'll cover yet more. This is verses 19 through 27 of Jeremiah 17, where God told them that the Sabbath mattered because he would make it a touchstone for their repentance. And by their faithfulness or failure in keeping the Sabbath, their lives and their future in the land would be determined. So let's read from that. Jeremiah 17, verses 19 through 27. Thus said the Lord to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah entered, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Judah, Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judah and the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, and from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched." Pretty clear, eh? Do this for the sake of your lives. People, your lives are at stake. All you have to do is not work on the Sabbath. Do you care enough about your lives to put down your burdens for one day and seven and rest before the Lord? Do you take God seriously in this matter? Or is it just mere legalism to come and go according to our mood? Do you believe that he actually will reward obedience or do you believe that it's no big deal? These are the questions that God is putting before the Israelites. And their answer, their answer was to work, to continue to work on the Sabbath. All these promises were nothing compared with the opportunity of making more money, getting more stuff on the Sabbath. And they did. Until one day God sent the Babylonian army against them. And they were defeated and taken into exile where they could learn the meaning of their disobedience. And it would seem that in fact they had learned it. After the exile, when a remnant of the Jews had returned to the promised land, we read in Nehemiah 10, 28-33, that the people swore an oath to keep the Sabbath. 
They swore that they would not intermarry with the people of the land, which had been one of the leading causes of idolatry before the exile, that they would not buy or sell on the Sabbath, that they would observe the Sabbath year, designated as a special time when the land would lie fallow, and that debts would be forgiven. This was something that was commanded by the church, by God near the beginning of, with the Ten Commandments, but they never really seemed to practice this. But they were going to do it this time. And that they would provide for temple worship. So at last it seems that the people got it. That they understood that the law was given to them for their good and they needed to obey it if they were going to thrive in the land. A few chapters later, in Nehemiah 13, 15 through 22, we read that it didn't work out so well after all. Nehemiah reports, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, Mm -hmm. and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, foreigners um, who lived in Tyre, but who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your love. Nehemiah had read Jeremiah. He knew that if the people had been willing to keep the Sabbath, that they would have avoided the exile with all its grief and suffering. They would have had a Davidic king on the throne and the land would be prosperous. Yet here the people are, are breaking the Sabbath again. What on earth are you doing? Do you want to bring another exile on us? A destruction from which we will never recover? You must observe the Sabbath. You will observe the Sabbath. If I have to put soldiers on the gates to make sure that you don't do business on the Sabbath. And he did. And they did. And the people endured. So all this... All this was the heritage of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. If there was one thing that they had been convinced of, one thing that had been pounded into them over the course of the preceding centuries, it was that the Sabbath mattered. Break the Sabbath law, and it could spell the end of the Jewish people. Then Jesus shows up, and he's harvesting on the Sabbath. What on earth? If gathering sticks on the Sabbath was liable on the Sabbath was liable to the death penalty, shouldn't harvesting grain get the same treatment? And people are following Jesus' teaching, an example by the thousands. What if they all start harvesting grain as well on the Sabbath? Will God turn the Romans on us and crush us once and for all? And Jesus is healing people. Well, it's not clear if this is work on Jesus' part. I mean, he only says a few words. It clearly runs the risk of encouraging the people to work on the Sabbath in order to get to Jesus and be healed. People might walk for miles to see him, much longer than was allowed 
for a Sabbath day's walk to the synagogue. And they might break open holes in the roof and lower down people on mats, all of which was clearly work. Luke 13, 14 reports that on a different Sabbath, when Jesus had healed a man, the synagogue leader was so incensed that he told the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Not only was Jesus doing something that was perilously close to work by performing the healing, he was encouraging people to come and be healed, and that coming might end up causing them to do work, and it should be done on another day besides the Sabbath. In the spirit of Nehemiah, the Pharisees saw themselves as the soldiers on the wall who were going to prevent the people from working for their own good, that the Sabbath might be observed and that the nation might be saved. But God did not want the nation to be saved that way. He did not want the Sabbath to be observed at gunpoint. He did not want people to go hungry when food was available or to be sick when healing could be had for the sake of of observing the Sabbath. So Jesus asks the Pharisees a few questions. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. We rarely see Jesus recorded as getting angry here, but he is, but he is angry here, grieved at their hardness of heart. The Pharisees had forgotten that the answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? is that there are two commandments, and they are inseparable. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, especially the neighbor in need. As Jesus had said previously, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Sabbath law likewise hung on these two commandments, and it could not be properly observed while violating either of them. Observing the Sabbath law did not require sending a hungry man home hungry so he could avoid having to work to feed himself. Observing the Sabbath law did not require sending a hurting man home in pain so that one could avoid having to work to heal him. We may feed the hungry and heal the hurting on the Sabbath. Indeed, any action that is required of us in order to love God and love our neighbor is required of us as much on the Sabbath as on any other day. This should not have been news to the Pharisees, though. Isaiah had said something very like it, as we read in Isaiah 1, 12 through 17. When you come... To appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. New moons and Sabbath's feasts and offerings are an abomination to God when they are divorced from the love of God and neighbor that should motivate them. This is why Jesus was angry when he looked around at the Pharisees who were preparing to judge him for healing a man and why he was grieved that they could not sanction the healing but found it entirely right and proper to plot to kill him for doing on a Sabbath day things that God wants done on every day. One of the results of separating works from the love that should motivate them is that the works become tyrants. Sabbath law was a tyrant for the Pharisee, harshly ruling their lives and being used by them to rule others. Paul encountered the same problem in the church at Galatia, as we can see in Galatians 4, 8 through 11, where he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to those weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. The Galatian church had come to know God as a result of the witness of the apostles, and people had been baptized into the church without any reference to the Sabbath law. But other people, for whom the law had become a tyrant, brought the law to Galatia as well, and sought to use it to bring them back into a slavery that Paul saw as indistinguishable from their former slavery to demons. That's what the weak and worthless elementary principles are. That is, and, and by observing the Sabbath in this way, they became slaves as much as they had been beforehand. Far from improving their relationship to God, the observance of the Sabbath law in this way put their salvation at great peril. And Paul was deeply concerned for them. This problem also surfaced at the Colossian church, where Paul had to warn them in Colossians 2.16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in a question of food or drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. People were attempting to import laws regarding food and drink and special days into the Colossian church, and Paul would have none of it. For these became matters of judgment rather than grace. The people practiced these observances not as a grateful response to all that God had done for them, but rather to please the legal nitpickers who brought, had brought the laws with them, making the church slaves once more when they should have been free. Paul brings the focus back where it should be in Romans 14, 1 through 9. You may want to turn there and read that with me if you want. It's Romans 14. I'll be reading chapter, verses 1 through 9. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. What we do is done to the Lord, not to please the legal nitpickers among us. We celebrate days and we eat food in honor of the Lord and give thanks to him. I am not in the business of judging the quality of the gifts and the, that you give to the Lord, nor are you in the business of judging the quality of the gifts that I give. We give and serve out of grateful and loving hearts, and the Lord who knows the heart receives the gift and accepts the service. And if we fall short in our giving and service, the Lord himself will make it right, for he died and rose again for just this purpose. The church exercised this freedom by moving the Sabbath observance from Saturday, the seventh day of the week, to Sunday, the first day, in honor of Jesus' resurrection. So that's why we call it the Lord's Day. But some would say that if it's okay to esteem all days alike, does it really matter if we observe the Lord's Day as a special day at all? The weak ones among us, one might argue, need special days to be reminded of God's provision for us and respond to it with gratitude. But if you're strong, you should be able to do this every day. So every day should be special, right? Well, yeah, at one level, yes. And we'll see a little bit more of that in a moment. But another level, maybe not. Well, some of, well, it may be true for some people that they can do this. For me, and for most of us, I think, it doesn't work that way. If you're weak like me, then my experience is that if every day is special, none of them is. The world, the flesh, and the devil have such a powerful attraction for us that unless we actively take steps to set aside parts of our lives to focus on God and our relationship to him, we all, almost always find ourselves losing sight of God entirely in the rush of the immediate, the urgent, and the seductive. In a world like ours, perhaps all of us are weak by these standards. And we should welcome the opportunities that are special days like the Lord's Day give us to be reminded that we are not slaves any longer, but part of God's family. And we are not left to our own resources, but great recipients of God's gracious and abundant provision. But as the author of Hebrews shows us, it's not really a matter of either or. As if to say that by observing one day and seven that we are free from needing to observe the Sabbath every day. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, he shows us that our little weekly Sabbath observances, like so many practices given in the Old Testament, are earthly shadows of a heavenly reality, namely the rest of God. God's invitation to his people, not only as they wandered in the wilderness, but in every generation since then, has been to enter into his rest. We are in a time that called today when that offer still stands. But it will not always stand, and we can forfeit the offer by our disobedience and unbelief. That was the summary of chapter 3 of Hebrews, but now in chapter 4, I'll read continuing. Um, he says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it had to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we who have believed enter that rest. As it is said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest through their entry into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Our weekly observances of the Lord's Day are little images of the life of the believer as we rest in Christ from the need to save ourselves by our works. And that rest, in turn, that we have in Christ's saving work on our behalf, is itself a little image of the rest that God himself entered into on the seventh day of creation and still enjoys, for that day continues, and to which he invites us. So each Lord's Day, as we meet together, we are in some sense enacting and in some sense rehearsing for the life that we will have in heaven. A life where we can rest entirely on God's abundant and never-ceasing provision, and we can return our thanks to Him in ever-increasing joy and splendor. It is here, I think, that we see what Jesus meant when He said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He is the one who rescued us from our need to save ourselves. It is by His death and resurrection that we can be adopted as sons and daughters of God and so gain entry into His rest. He is the one who teaches us how to love God and our neighbor and He who enables us to do so even in the midst of our rest in Him. Without Jesus, no Sabbath observance can be anything more than a dead tyrannical slavery with Him all Sabbath observances contain hints of the profound rest and freedom and joy to which God calls us both now and in the life to come. How about you? Have you entered into God's rest? This is no light question, but it is a matter of life and death as it was for the Israelites of Jeremiah's day. Are you willing to lay down your load of dead works and let God provide for you instead out of His righteousness in Jesus Christ, His Son. Do you still insist on being slaves to the powers of this world? Or will you enter into the freedom and rest of the children of God? I hope it's clear by now that we don't answer these questions by getting out a list of do's and don'ts which we can use to examine each other's behavior and determine if we're doing a good enough job of resting and enjoying God's provision. That would miss the point really, really badly if that's what you thought. But I want to ask each of us, and myself included in this, do we believe that God has provided for us and provi is providing for us and will provide for us? Do we believe in God's provision in a way that allows us to rest in it? Or do we tense up inside when we think of resting in God's provision, afraid that it might include too many things we don't want and too few things that we do want. You know, the meal that God serves is going to be all 
vegetables and all, you know, bad stuff and no, no dessert. You know, that, that's the kind of provision we think God has for us. You know, that it's, it's just a burden and all that kind of stuff. Is that it? Or do we really see God's provision as abundant, as something that we can and are willing to rest in? And when we rest in God, are we really resting in His presence, expressing our gratitude for all His provision for us? Or are we busy accumulating spiritual brownie points? Yeah, I'm resting better than you are. And I'm doing without more things than you are, for God's sake. See my, my stoic excellence here. Is that what it's about? Is our rest in God, or is it in the variety of recreation that we stuff into our days? Yeah, I rest in God by playing video games and going off to amusement parks and running off to spend time with friends. And, oh, God? Yeah, yeah, he's around here somewhere, I think. Uh, don't, that didn't seem to be quite what he had in mind. Because our rest should include the love of God, specific, explicit, focused. And it should include the care for our neighbor. There's space for it there. Our, God didn't give us a private rest that leaves both of them out. If you struggle with any of these issues, if you have to admit, as I do, and I, you know it, I do, um, that you don't rest as well as God would have you to do, then I invite you to think more deeply about God's love for us, His provision for us in Jesus Christ and in His people, His presence here and now through His Spirit, and His invitation before us to enter into His rest, into the joy that He has set before us in this life and in the life to come. These things are what make God worthy of trust. His promises, His love for us, His willingness and His ability to fulfill them. And when we love him more and when we trust him more, then we will be able to rest in him better. Rest does not come at the point of a gun. God isn't telling us the beatings will continue until you learn to rest. Rather, he wants us to know that who he is, to learn to love him for what he is, and to enter into the kind of relationship with him where that love flows out of our trust in him and our care for our neighbor on the Lord's day and every day.